You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. What a good morning, amen? Amen. What a good time to worship the Lord and to gather together and serve one another. It's really a blessing. It's a blessing. I was thinking about the other day to gather as a church and see all that God's doing. We had a... I love the block launched as a ministry this week on Thursday night. It's out loving our community, and man, it's just such an awesome thing. I really want to encourage you, man. If you've not signed up, sign up. You can. Uh, there's links like everywhere on the computer, on the back, at the welcome table. I'll sign you up myself. Uh, we will. We will get you signed up because it is really an incredible opportunity. We have an incredible group of leaders who are uh, facilitating this ministry, and honestly, uh, make it easier for you for you to impact your community. It's. it's it's really incredible. We got, um, we have uh, Jorge and Alfredo. I think I saw Alfredo. Alfredo's here. And just man, the the organization they put into it. We have our pod leaders like Tristan and Nick, and anyways, a bunch of people. Um, really a great thing. But man, I was just so encouraged this week. You know, I was doing a worship group. I just kind of made an open invite for my small group is uh, on Thursdays at six, just to come and worship and pray and intercede and pray. And as we were just praying, I just sense that God has such a heart, such a soft heart for this city and for this area, and just longs to move and, and the desire of his heart is for transformation here. So I want to encourage you, be a part of what God's doing, because it's fun, and it's encouraging, and not only do you get to bless people, it will bless you, right? It's a blessing to be a blessing. Amen? Well, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, let me tell you a little about myself. I am afraid of the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Okay, you're like, what? Okay, I'm afraid of the Grand Canyon. Here's what I mean. Uh, the Grand Canyon to me is the physical embodiment of everything I fear, mostly just the one thing, heights. Uh, I don't know about you, I am a person who is afraid of heights, and so I went to the Grand Canyon. They told me, oh, it's, you know, it's pretty cool. It's like this big hole in the ground, and I hiked the Grand Canyon from the top to the bottom and stayed at the bottom and then hiked back out, uh, and I am not, yeah, that was, that sucked. Uh, <laughs> it was beautiful. I got a lot of great pictures, but I like woke up the next morning and could not move. <laughs> it's probably the sleeping on the ground. The older I get, the less on the ground sleeping I do. Um, but uh, when I was at the Grand Canyon, something I noticed was that people do not fear the Grand Canyon. I fear the Grand Canyon. Not like fear like it's going to break into my house or like beat me up and throw my frisbee on the roof or it's going to like steal my money or find me in a dark alley. That's not how I feel about the Grand Canyon. Like I'm going to come out of a restaurant late at night and I'm just going to hear behind me like, give me all your money. I'm going to turn around to the Grand Canyon. I fear it differently. (laughs) I fear it in the way that some of y'all apparently don't fear it because I've seen people there. I fear it in the way that I have a healthy respect to the consequences of heights, specifically what they can do to the human form with enough velocity, right? Uh, (laughs) Because I have seen people, I kid you not, lean over the edge with the help of a friend to take a photo. Raise your hand if you would do that. Be honest. You're just, you're the daredevil. You would do that. Nick, as his wife immediately, is like, you have a baby now, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm one of those people that's like, I, I think, I think five feet away from the edge is a respectable distance from the Grand Canyon. Like, the Grand Canyon's huge. 
Five feet is not going to make or break the view for me for the Grand Canyon. But I don't know if you ever stood on the edge of like a canyon or a cliff, and if you're like me, you run every scenario that could happen. This is the one time I'm on this one rock. This whole thing was built by erosion, which means all of the land that was here is gone. So that means eventually this rock will be gone. Is today that day? Right? That's what I think when I'm on the edge. Uh, so I, I think I have like a healthy respect for the Grand Canyon. Now, I'm not a heights person. I don't like heights. I don't like being up high. That's why I moved to the valley so I could be flat. Um, but I find myself like we just went camping up on the Mogollon Rim, and we camped near like this huge edge. So I, I would say like I don't live in fear. Like it's not like spiders or like Indiana Jones for snakes. I have a healthy fear of heights. Do you kind of know what I mean? It's like a respect. Like, we get each other. Like, I respect it. It respects me. It's kind of like, yeah, like giraffes at the zoo. Like, they're cool, but like, I wouldn't get too close to one and get stomped on, right? It's like a healthy fear. I, uh, I went with uh, our former uh, lead pastors here, Dana. I went with him and his son, Jamin, and Jensen, I think both of them, and when I first moved here, they said, hey, we're going to go to Zion. I was like, that sounds cool. I don't know what that is, but it sounds cool. Let's do it. And so we went to Zion. They said, we're going to go rappelling with a group of pastors. And me, being afraid of heights, I was like, yeah, sure, why not? I don't know why I agreed to it, but maybe I didn't understand what rappelling was. But rappelling is when you foolishly decide that the only thing that separates you from this 200-foot drop in certain death is a tiny rope rigged up by a hippie you just met three hours ago. <laughs> That's what rappelling is. And so you put your life in the hands of someone named Sage who smells like day-old granola, and he hooks you up at 200 feet, and you have to know how to do this so you don't fall upside down. And the whole time you're doing it, they tell you stories like, oh, yeah, man, this one time I was, like, upside down and, like, sliding out. It was so crazy. And then you're like, okay, cool. Like, I'm bigger than you, Sage. How is it going to go? Oh, you're for sure fall, but there's water at the bottom. Like, there's three feet of water at the bottom, Sage. Right? So <laughs> let me show you a photo. So, yeah, this is kind of like if you ever go to Zion, you know, there's a big river, and, um, and we have to climb down this. This was, like, covered in moss. So this was the last moment you could really stand. You have to put all your weight. And then you can kind of see the people down here who were like, why are they doing that? Um, is there another? I think there was, was there another photo? There's another one. So, like, this one, we hiked. We drove out outside of Zion, and then we hiked for 11 hours down this canyon. And you have to go down things like this. And once you've gone down one, you've got to go down all of them. I don't have the, because I just don't have the upper body strength to crawl back up. So nine hours of this, this is about 200 feet. It empties into a pool of water. And honestly, it was awesome. I loved it. And you're like, how could you love it when you're afraid of heights? And I got to tell you, I loved it. I would go again right now and do it. I, I don't trust the people rigging me up any more than I did that moment. And, uh, you know, and I had a lot of conversations with the Lord the whole time. Uh, the whole time we we're there, Dana was coming up with sermon titles. Our former pastor, like, take the leap or die. Or like, hold on, be, be roped to the Lord or die. I'm like, man, these are not encouraging sermon titles. It's like, but I would go again today. And the question is, like, why? If you're afraid of heights, why would you go near heights again? And honestly, it's because I'm dumb. But <laughs> aside from that, fair, you're fired. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's because I think I have a different kind of fear. How many of you know there's different kinds of fear? There's terror. There's dread. Then there's this kind of fear that's like a healthy, honoring respect where you get or you begin to understand 
the scale and the awesomeness of what you're dealing with and your own finite nature in comparison to it. When I think of the physical world, that's probably as close of an understanding as I can get to this idea that we see in Scripture over and over called the fear of God. It's a really unique idea. We've been talking about everyday evangelism, and I wanted to take a different approach to evangelism because I love the way Peter approaches it in 1 Peter. And he talks a lot in 1 Peter about fear, but he also talks about the fear of God. There's two words for fear that we'll see broached, but there's actually a ton of different versions of this kind of general root of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is fear, and the Greek phobos, which is fear, right? Phobia. That's where we get that. And we have this kind of idea of like terror or dread, but we also have this idea of like reverent honor and respect, a recognition of the great magnitude of God. And there's kind of a fine line separating them. There's a fine line separating uh, the, the two kinds of fear that I want to talk about today. Last week, I talked about the hope of glory. How many of you guys were here last week to hear the sermon? You were here last week? Awesome. Good job. Uh, and we talked specifically about, if you weren't here, let me sum it up. We talked about how the fear of shame can stop our witness. We've been given the hope of Jesus Christ. We've been given the commission to share it, every believer to share the hope and healing of Jesus Christ. And yet we're stopped constantly. Why? Why do we not share it? And one of the reasons why is through fear. Maybe we don't want to be preachy or we don't want to lose friends or we're worried what people might think or how they'll respond. We don't want to risk it. Maybe we don't want to bring up faith. Maybe we think it'll threaten our image. So we talked about that. But I got to say, one of the reasons evangelism will falter is too much fear. But on the opposite, and bear with me here if you would, one of the reasons evangelism falters is not just too much fear, but too little fear. In 1 Peter, he talks about not to avoid fear, but to fight fear with fear. That's what we're going to talk about today. How do I fight fear with fear? It's a shift from the fear of man to the fear of God. And if you're here and you grew up in like a really maybe like non-denom or Pentecostal, you're like, but doesn't the unconditional love of God remove all fear? And that's why my job is to teach and explain, because that is true. But remember, there's different kinds of fear. Because in 1 John 4, 4, it says, if anyone fears, he's not in love, because fear has to do with punishment. But we're not talking about punishment right now in this moment. But I want to explain, because it does get confusing. Because if you go read 1 Peter, what you'll see is like almost a paradox of uh, Peter teaching people how to live. Because he says, don't live in fear. And then he says also, live in fear. And the question is, oh, does that mean the Bible is contradictory? It's like, no, but we need to understand what he means by fear. And who we're meant to fear. And how. For example, when Peter's talking to wives in 1 Peter 3, 6, he said, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. He says, don't fear anything that frightens. When he's talking uh, later in 3.14 about suffering and the suffering they face, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Okay, seems like the overall idea, right? Don't fear. 
But if you were here last week, you heard me read a scripture, 1 Peter 1.17, that says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. So don't fear, don't fear, but conduct yourself with fear. What does that mean? <laughs> And it goes back to this idea that we're talking about how do we evangelize in exile. So I want to explain what Peter is talking about here about the fear of God. Because it's a big idea, and I don't want us to be afraid of the idea, but I want us to go deeper in understanding. Because in 1 Peter, fear and the fear of God is not counter to hope. In fact, it's a part of hope. So go with me. If you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Peter 3, chapter 3, Verse 13. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry. The words will be on the screen. We'll go through it together. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. It says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make it a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Hear that again, because I don't want us to miss it. He said in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We're going to talk specifically on that next week. So having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter here is saying, listen, being ready with the gospel is being linked to this idea of not fearing others and instead honoring God as holy. And so last week we talked about the idea of not fearing others. And you can go back, I'm not going to re-preach that message, but you can go back and listen to that, not being afraid of others, not being afraid of what other people think about you, all those kind of things, or the shame silencing our witness or all that. But we have this second idea that he introduces in there as well, which is to honor God as holy which is kind of a big thought, right? Now, we could leave this place, and I could just say, hey, honor God is holy, and you could be like, all right. But the question is, tomorrow when you go to work, like, what does that look like, honor God is holy? Hey, what are you doing? I don't, I'm honoring God is holy. So it kind of looks like you're making a sandwich. Like, I don't know. Pastor didn't explain what I'm supposed to do, right? <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about how, what does that mean to honor God as holy, and what are this, the words that he's using here when he's talking about this idea of honor, awesomeness, reverence, respect, fear, this really unique thing he's talking about. Honor God is holy. Well, the original meaning of this goes all the way back to Isaiah. If you were here last week, you heard me say the great thing about the epistles is you begin to uh, understand them. You have to understand them in the context of all of Scripture because it's all of Scripture, right? <laughs> Can't make it say someone doesn't say somewhere else. And so when we look at this phraseology that Peter's pulling in, it comes from the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 8, 12 through 13, where God is telling Isaiah, do not call, this should be like the verse of 2020. If there was like a, a year verse, this should be it. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. I know, really encouraging scripture, right? 
You're going to go into Hobby Lobby next. You're going to see that on like a little pallet wood sign. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. You're like, oh my gosh, that's so good, right? <laughs> that's, that's the next Chip and Joanna Gaines episode. <laughs> see, it's unique. Isaiah was tasked to prophesy to a group of people who didn't want to hear what he had to say. He was tasked to prophesy to the people of Israel, and here's what he was tasked to say. Listen, y'all messed up, like bad, so bad, that God is going to send a nation who is going to absolutely destroy your nation, burn down your homes, take you into exile, as judgment for your heinous sins that you've been committing. Not, how do you think that's going to be received, right? Not great, not great. And he says, but... There is going to be a Messiah that God is going to bring to rescue you, not only as a, as a nation, not as a nation, but eternally, eternally in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. But God is warning Isaiah here, listen, when you bring this to the people, they are going to freak out. And a very common emotion when you're freaking out is anger, followed quickly by fear, right? Right? And he says, don't fear what they fear. Don't even fear them. Don't even fear opposition or rejection. He says, instead, let God be your greatest dread and your greatest fear. That's an interesting way to comfort somebody. Hey, don't be afraid. Let God be your dread. Again, not going to be on a Hobby Lobby sign. That's all right. I don't need that computer. <laughs> That's cool. Let God be my dread. Uh, <laughs> but there's this idea in 1 Peter that fear is not being eliminated. It's being redirected and re-understood. See, 1 Peter begins to reveal to us that the hindrance to evangelism might not be an overwhelming amount of fear, but a lack of the right kind of fear. It's interesting, I, uh, when I became a lead pastor, people told me, I mean, I've been in ministry for, uh, at that time, I guess, 12 years, and then I became a lead pastor, and they were like, hey, just so you know, in your third year, it gets, after the first two years, it, like, you flow. It's so easy. I was like, awesome. So my third year was March of 2020, which, if you were around, was a great time to be trying to gather a large group of people together. <laughs> Uh, and I, it was, I remember like texting the people who told me that, like, man, after, after two years, man, you're just flowing. I was texting them like, you lied to me. Like, I will never forgive you, right? Like, because it was a lie. It's not true. Uh, or at least it wasn't true for me. And I guess, you know, I didn't anticipate a pandemic, but maybe I should have. Who knows? Uh, but I, it was so fascinating preaching during uh, COVID, during riots, during racial tension, during this election, uh, abortion law, immigration crisis, right, every kind of thing. Because it was like moment after moment where I just was waiting to just severely piss somebody off. And it, it did happen. Uh, I, I have like a spiritual gift of that apparently. And, uh, and, and there were many moments where people would just lose it. Like, how, how can you not tell everybody to wear 12 masks? Or like, how could you tell anyone to wear masks? Like, we got to put on 30 masks or Damascus. Paul was met God on the road to Damascus. We can't wear masks. You're muzzling me. I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, why don't you come out and feed the poor? Then we'll talk about it. 
And I remember, like, we, like uh, Marcus and I, we did a conversation <laughs> on a race. And I was like, the people are going to love this. Th no, I guess not. I mean, most people did. But I thought it was, like, so neutral. Like, let's talk about loving people for Jesus of all different colors and justice and why it matters. People, like, got mad at us. Like, you're making a political stance. I was like, no, just talking to my friend and asking him how he feels about things that are happening. And it was such a unique time. And I, if I'm being totally honest with you, there were moments where the fear of somebody losing it on me, because I only had so much emotional energy. I was, like, adopting a child at the time and trying to lead a church to this and hoping I could still pay all our staff, you know, these kind of things. Um, I, I, there was times where I was just like, I, just, I don't, I don't want to say anything, right? There's that temptation because people, I was like, man, someone's going to lose it. Someone's going to get mad. Someone's going to assume things about me, assume that I'm calling them this or saying that they're this or doing this. It's, it's absolutely wild. And so there was this, if I'm being honest, there's this tension to just shut your mouth. Have you ever felt that way? It's like, it's like oh my gosh, I'm not going to say anything. Not only that, I'm just I'm going to let it go. I just, I can't. I can't. But the hard part is, I, or not the hard part, the reality was, as I thought about this, people will always tell me, like, oh, is it interesting working for yourself? It's like, kind of, but, I mean, I technically report to a board of, uh, a financial accountability board, but also God is my boss. <laughs> I got to report to the Lord on this stuff. And uh, the big guy doesn't like it when you change his words. And uh, so I have to preach what's in Scripture, and sometimes people get mad at me, and it's like, well, I'm trying my best to be as gentle as possible. If you have been here for any amount of time, then you know I'm trying to be as gentle and caring and gracious as possible. Because who am I to judge what you've been through in your life? I'm not. I'm just here to teach the freedom of Jesus Christ. But in those moments, I, I can understand this crisis of faith because the honest people can be scary. But the reality that I had to have was like, who do I fear more, people or God? Not that I'm afraid of God. But who is my deep reverent honor to? Who do I serve? See, Jesus knew these moments were going to happen. He knew we were going to be tempted in the face of difficulty to swallow our tongues on what is true. That's why Luke 9.26 said, For whoever is ashamed of me, this is Jesus talking, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Okay, I'm going to give you some verses that you probably skipped in your devos, uh, but these are good. Trust me. Stay with me, okay? 1 Corinthians 1.18 promises us, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jesus says, listen, people are not necessarily going to respond well to what you say, but don't allow that to shut your mouth. When you're preaching, don't be afraid of man. Have a fear of something greater. Okay, let me explain. Jesus in Matthew 10, 26, he says this. He says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Look at, look at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Whoa. <laughs> do you read Scripture and just pause? Like, okay. I mean, that's like Jesus. Like, you know, like Jesus, right? The lamb and, you know, the cross for you. Like, people are like, Jesus was such a good teacher. Like, sounds kind of mean-spirited if you think. If, if he's not God, this sounds bananas, right? 
But it's actually, I think, really beautiful. And here's why. Let me explain. If you've ever read uh, old spirituals, especially old spirituals that come uh, from slaves, former slaves in this country, or during the time of slavery, and you read the songs that they were writing as they worshiped Jesus, it is mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Like the content, the theme of these. Most of them are songs about judgment and the coming of God and damnation. And you're like, I'm sorry, what? Right? Wouldn't it be like, we're getting out of, like, freedom? Right? You would think. But no, they're mostly about judgment. How? Well, because just like those people who experience shame for the gospel really anticipate the eternal glory— So do those who face fear and injustice anticipate Christ's return to judge the earth. Listen, as Christians, we we strive for justice for all people. But there will never be enough justice on this earth. There cannot be enough earthly justice for the Holocaust. There cannot be enough earthly, earthly justice for the lives lost in chains. There cannot be enough justice on the earth. See, the beautiful thing about eternity is in eternity we can understand a true and perfect sense of justice, one that doesn't falsely convict, one that doesn't miss offenses, one that doesn't mischarge, one that doesn't forget things or not see things. That's both exciting and terrifying, right? That's the kind of fear I'm talking about, a recognizing of the judgment, a recognizing of what's coming. And so in old spirituals, and old slave spirituals, they would sing and anticipate the judgment. Why? Because they're was it going to be justice fully and completely for what they experienced on this earth? But there will be through Jesus Christ. See, if you are really, I, I tell people, coming from Seattle, I have friends that really consider themselves like about social justice. I said, you can't really be about true justice unless you're about eternity and the judgment of Christ because that's where true justice is going to come from. We fight for this on, on the earth and we believe for justice for all people on the earth and we stand for those, especially those who can't stand for themselves or speak for themselves, but we believe in the justice that comes through God, which is both empowering and we have a healthy fear of. See, persecuted people are awake to the judgment of the Lord. That's why if you've traveled the world and you've gone to places, I've stood in churches that you think would have a, have a much different timbre or tone, and yet they're preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Why? Because they understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there is no hope without Jesus Christ. There is no justice without Jesus Christ. There is no life and freedom without Jesus Christ. It spurs us on to evangelism when we realize that there is an end. And there is a coming judgment. But the Western church, we don't really like that. Can I tell you what we need as we look at First Peter? We need a return to repentance. And not to see it as like a bad or scary thing. If you grew up in like a fire and brimstone church and your anxiety is like going up right now, you're having flashbacks, hear me say that all of this is only possible because of the great love of Jesus Christ. Right? We believe, our mission statement is on the back wall, that all people can experience the freedom and the power of a new life in Christ. If you're here today, the call is, listen, yes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but there is redemption for all people, for every individual in this place, and God invites you into a loving relationship of hope and healing. But the hard part is that so often we've made the gospel one-dimensional. It's all about accessing blessing, but without the need to avoid judgment. It's all about the need to receive blessing. But we reject the idea that we need to avoid judgment. In a way, I think it kind of cheapens grace. 
because it's the great love of Jesus that saved us from the great judgment. And if we ignore the judgment, we dismiss the grace and the love. But God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you might have eternal life, so that I might have eternal life. What's amazing is if we take away, or what's interesting, if we take away that, the idea of judgment and repentance, it takes away not only the beauty of the grace we received, but it kind of breaks down the freedom we get from repenting. Man, to laying it out before him and feeling that burden. But do you remember when you first encountered the love of Jesus and you took that burden of sin and shame off your shoulders and you laid it at his feet? When we don't tell people to release that, we rob them of that beautiful freedom and they continue to carry it. And it's like, no, don't carry that. Lay that down. In the early church in the book of Acts, this is so crazy, the church grew as they lived in fear of the Lord. Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What a great combo. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's the fear of the Lord, recognizing the great awesomeness of God and who He is and how finite we are and how He is holy and we are not, but also the comfort in the Holy Spirit who secures our salvation, who says, I've given the Holy Spirit to show that, yes, you are saved through Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Jude 23 in compelling and crying out to the church, Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. See, Peter's perspective is this. Like their Savior, the early church was rejected by the world, but in these difficulties, God was refining his people and telling them, listen, you have a calling and a great call to preach the gospel to those who have not experienced the freedom that you've experienced, who have not discovered what you have discovered. 1 Peter 4, 4 says this. He says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, meaning the world. He says, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is why the gospels preach, he says. Because everyone's going to give an account to God. But if you have received Jesus Christ, you're covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when he comes to judge the world, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the blood of Jesus. And Peter's point here is kind of like, don't you think your family should have that too? Don't you think your neighbor should have that? Don't you think your coworkers should have that? Here's, maybe you haven't thought about this, Lee. Have you thought about the fact that your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, your coworkers, everybody surrounding, everybody who's walked by this window will give an account to God at the end of their life? Is it really an issue of fearing too much or not enough? Do we love the people in our life enough to fear for them? I know this is not the kind of sermon that gets a lot of amens, but I'm going to keep saying it. Do we love our family enough to fear for them? Do we love the people around for us to recognize that if we do not share the gospel, but I'm afraid, I don't know what they'll think of me. I'll tell you exactly what they'll think of you when they get to judgment, knowing that you knew the truth and you never told them. I, I can give you some guesses and some words they'll use. They'll be devastated because you said you loved them, but you never told them of the greatest love that ever exists. What, how they react, how someone else reacts to the gospel, 
That's up to them. We all know. If you, before you knew Jesus, you, re, you probably reacted some ways, right? Someone told you, like, oh, man, leave me alone. But that's the question. Do we love them enough to fear for them, to show them mercy or kindness by warning them to snatch them out of the fire and say, listen, you weren't, you're not meant for judgment. You're meant to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is the theme we see constantly, not only in First Peter, but in the New Testament. If we have appropriate fear for them and of God, we'll preach the gospel. And here's why. It's because we please those we fear. We please those we fear. There's a corner by my house and uh, by the CVS pharmacy. If you ever go down um, uh, McClintock and Southern, you've seen this guy, heavyset guy, mid-50s. He wears white shorts. I know. I don't know where he got them. White shorts and like a white cotton button-up shirt. And he's got signs on white. You can sense a theme. Uh, white poster board that he's written something in pen, but not Sharpie, like ink pen. So I have no idea what these signs say, and I refuse to get close enough to find out. But, but they say something about judgment, and I know that because every time I'm parked there, because I go to that store, I can hear him, like, yelling at my car. I'm like, bro, like, I I'm already in. Like, <laughs> I'm fine. Leave me alone, right? And he's just yelling at me about, like, judgment and how, like, turn or burn. I don't know if I have like a black truck or something. I don't know what his deal is, but he's just yelling at me constantly. And, and he has these signs about the end of the world and judgment. And so the question is, is that, uh, is that what I'm suggesting, right? Like in order to really like let people know, go out to the street corners, stand up on your lunch table and tell them they're all going to burn if they don't go to Jesus. No, please do not do that. <laughs> or if you do that, just don't wear a banner shirt when you do. <laughs> You're doing that whatever. Uh, <laughs> is that what it looks like to fear God? Walk around with a Bible and a lightning bolt? I think the answer is really in our experiences, right? Our fear is not like uh, the fear in Iran that I talked about last week, you know, death, torture. We're not hiding in catacombs like the early church. Our fear looks more like trying to please others more than God. Here's the reality. You know that you fear someone when you desire their approval and live for their praise. That's, that's who you fear. That's who you revere. That's who you honor. That's who you have a deep sense of fear for. Someone you desire their approval and live for their praise. See, we're, we so long for the approval of others. We long to please those around us. But the unique thing is Christians are not only promised that the world will reject them and they will be social exiles, they're called to embrace the rejection and social exile that comes with the cross. See, as a believer, if you've received the hope of Jesus Christ, you are called to live for the approval of the king and not for the culture. That's who we're called to live for. Galatians 1.10 says, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I, or am I trying, or sorry, <clears throat> let me go back. For, na, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The New King James translates it so literally as, am I a man pleaser or a God pleaser? Who am I trying to please? When Paul spoke about slaves and their masters, he said they were bond servants, a little different, but 
He said in Colossians 3.22, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincere heart fearing the Lord. He says, listen, you're operating not out of a fear of man, but out of a fear of God. See, fear is linked to pleasing. We please those we fear. The difficulty, believers, hear me today, Banner family, Believers who try and please people will ultimately fail at pleasing God. See, there's a problem in our evangelism church in the Western world is that we fundamentally are committed to keeping people happy. We're fundamentally committed to having them liking us. And it's like we judge a success on the church based off like if they like us. It's like, yeah, well, the church is seen as da-da-da. It's like, yeah, the church has been slaughtered for thousands of years. It's rarely liked. I would be more concerned that we are liked, right? <laughs> That's more concerning to me. Now, this is not—I always premise things. This is not uh, a free pass to go be a bum on the Internet to people and be like, I'm not here to please people. I'm here to please God. It's like, no, you're just mean, right? <laughs> That's different. If you want to please God instead of people and you want to know what that looks like, Thursday night, 6 o'clock, come to Love the Block, and I'll teach you. I'll show you. It'll be really easy, and then you'll know. But this is the hard part is that we struggle with this. We want the world to think we're smart, relevant, hip, tolerant, progressive, fun, approving, all these things. We withhold truth for the sake of acceptance. Well, I don't want to say that because I don't want them to reject me. It's like, well, they're going to do it eventually. We try and polish the rough edges of Jesus I see that happen constantly in theology. We try to polish the rough edges of Jesus, and, like, we get the craziest—you hear the craziest theories about Jesus, right? It's like, well, Jesus, he was, you know, he was—I <laughs> can't even say him. It's going to just make too many people offended. Uh, anyways, Jesus is Jesus. <laughs> Did you see how I you see how I filtered that in that moment? Anyways, uh— <laughs> We have friendships with non-believers. I'm speaking to myself here, right? Like, we have spent friendships with non-believers for years, and we're, like, afraid to really, to really have that convo. Because, like, if we do, then they, what if they reject us? And then they, like, move, and then we tell them, and they're like, why didn't you tell me before when I saw you, like, all the time? It's like, yeah, well, I don't know. I didn't, didn't want you to think I was too much. The reality is we're afraid of them. We're more afraid of others than we are of the Lord. And that means we serve others instead of serving the Lord. But can I encourage you today, as crazy as this might sound, that this is an encouragement, we're called to fear God amid all fears. See, Peter writes First Peter fully understanding the human desire to please others, and he also understands what it means to lose people and lose friends for fearing God. And Peter even knows what it's like to have a personal struggle with desiring to please others and having that steal away from your God-given purpose or ministry. Let me explain. Paul in Galatians uh, writes about a confrontation he had with Peter, Cephas, and he talks about how they were pulling away from time with the Gentiles who he was called to minister to. And it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He said that that wasn't like a party that went around circumcising people. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was a group of Jewish believers who felt like you, in order to truly be a believer, you had to go through all the Jewish customs, and so the big one was circumcision. And the believers who were not circumcised were like, let's not do that. 
because they were adults. <laughs> it says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Peter was torn, right? He had his old friends and his old ways. And so they showed up, and he was ministering to all these Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people. And, he's, and he was embarrassed. And he said, ah, right? We see, sense this fear of what they think about him. I'm, I'm afraid of what people will think about me when I hang out with, insert blank. And that's the confrontation. Why are you more afraid of what your friends think than what God thinks? See, Peter's not downplaying fears, and I want you to hear me today to say, I'm not downplaying fears either, right? I, I understand. These are things I pray about. Christians are increasingly isolated in culture. Our social and cultural capital is fading away. If we're being honest, in the span of a decently short week, the Supreme Court could remove certain freedoms that we have as believers. When I look at the future in schools and I look at, as I look at things with my daughter, I see a school curriculum that's weaponized to doctrinate our children in secular dogmas and a new sexual ethic that I don't agree with. And I'm not like a dramatic person about this, but I think it'd be unwise to not see these things. It's not hard to imagine that well-intentioned laws, and I'm even going to give enough credit to say well-intentioned laws against discrimination or hate speech could be used to justify the shutting down or imprisonment of churches or Christians. And at a personal level, I don't think it's hard to imagine losing promotions, jobs, or family because you won't submit or agree to certain things you can't agree with. That's not that hard to imagine. This is why Jesus said, and hear me today, this is why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, remember Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? If you receive Jesus, you receive the peace that comes through him. But he said, when you've received that peace and you begin to share that peace with others, this is kind of what happens and what's going to happen. He says in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a lot to lose. And I'm not making light of that fact culturally. There's a lot for us to lose. And I think there will be more at stake. But the reality is, as believers, amidst all of that, Christians are not called to live scared or terrified. As a believer who's received the hope of Jesus Christ, the declaration of future glory, and who lives in fear of God and not of man, we don't stand around terrified at the news, or the Supreme Court, or the loss of a job, or persecution, or being maligned and slandered. Because the reality is if we do that, we're kind of preaching the wrong gospel. <laughs> we're preaching a gospel that says our greatest fear is the loss of power. Our greatest fear is the loss of money, the loss of influence, the loss of comfort. That's our greatest fear. Our greatest fear is not that. It's God. Because if we fear the loss of all those things, then what we're really living is a get what you can and preserve what you can gospel, which isn't the gospel. That's the world's ideology. That's a worldview. And it can't give us peace now, and it definitely can't give us eternal hope. And it can't stand up in the face of fear and say, listen, things are 
going my way, but there is a God who is for me who has given me a great plan and purpose, and so I will not live afraid because I fear God. I worship God. I praise Him. I seek His approval. I don't seek the approval of the governor for myself and my faith. I seek the Lord. Now, I honor and respect, as Scripture has called me to, 1 Peter 2, 17, to honor our leaders, but the greatest honor goes to the Lord. Nehemiah uh, in the Old Testament. I love Nehemiah. Here's a guy who's exiled. He's in a foreign land. And at the time, foreign leaders began to get this idea in their kingdoms that if we sent people back to their lands to rebuild, then they would be a lot easier to manage because they would be in one spot. They wouldn't be super powerful, but we wouldn't have to, like, pay for them, basically. And so they sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And he goes, and it's all torn down. It's all rubble. And he starts rebuilding. And what happens is the enemies around Jerusalem come and start raiding Jerusalem and attacking. So they'd be building over here, like part of it's down over there. And then they'd come through, and they'd like have to run over and try to fight these guys. And when they're fighting over here, they'd come through, and they'd have to run over and, you know, all this stuff. And so uh, their enemies start sending them letters like, we're going to destroy you. We're going to defeat you. We're going to kill you. We're going to take you away. And it says in Nehemiah, it talks about how they sent the letters so that they would live in fear. And I'm going to read to you verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, but I'm going to go back to verse 10. 14 will be on the screen, but listen to this. It says, in, the, in this moment, it says, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That's what the people were saying. It says, and our enemies said, they'll not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. It says, and at that time, the Jews who lived near them, that lived near to Jerusalem, came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. They said, give up. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And here's verse 14. I love this. I'm like big Braveheart fan. This is like, this is good. It says, and I looked and arose and said to them, the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Amazing. Now that word awesome, we use a lot now in culture. Oh, that's so awesome. Oh, that's so awesome. And it, it's kind of this idea of great. But here's what the words are actually being said here, because they come from a similar root in Hebrew. What he's saying here is, do not be afraid of them. That right there is saying, do not live in fear. Do not be in fear. But he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. What he's saying here in, in the wording is, recall the Lord who is to be feared. That word awesome very directly translates as dreadful. Because if you have enemies come against you, what kind of God do you want? You want one that they're scared of. You don't want like a unicorn pony God. You know, like my little pony, just hope they can sparkle them up. Like this is, these are the Persians. They're going to skin you alive. They're going to burn everything you love, right? You need a God that to them is dreadful. But because of his great love for you, that wrath does not come upon you. That word there is to inspire awe, reverence, or fear. Are you getting it? Psalm 47, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Listen, do not be afraid of man. Fear God. Honor God is holy. 
That is the empowerment to evangelism even amid suffering. I'm going to say something decently paradoxical here, but if you've been listening, you'll understand. Do not be afraid. Fear God. Do not be afraid. Fear God. Man, you can come up today. This is the theme of 1 Peter. It's a letter to people. They're exiles in their homeland. They're suffering slander for their faith. Peter, Peter says, don't dread the things the enemy wants to frighten you with. Fear God in everything. What is he saying? God is for you. And who could be against you? Don't be overwhelmed by the fear of the world. But fear God. 1 Peter 3. I love He gives us instruction to husbands and wives. Let me, let me read this to you as we prepare to close. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they, receive, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I like that. He says, husbands, you better respect your wife if you want God to hear your prayers. But this encouragement he gives to women, if you're in here and you have your hair braided, you're like, oh my gosh, did, it, was it, did I not get the dress code memo? <laughs> no. He's saying, don't find your worth and your beauty in that. He's speaking to a culture in Asia Minor that would have layers of necklaces as a way to really show their beauty and their status and also to seduce men and have their identity and all these kind of things. And he's saying, listen, he's not anti-braids, right? <laughs> go to, you can go to Jerusalem and see people wearing braids. What is he saying? He's saying, that's not where your identity should be. That's not who you're trying to please. I don't care if it's gold necklaces or your phone or your car or where you go to lunch or your physical appearance, whatever it is. Our identity is not rooted in trying to please others. It's rooted in pleasing God. Peter's saying, don't get sucked into the world's standards. Don't be afraid of how people see you. Don't even try to win their approval with your outward appearance, how you dress. Show by serving God that you are a person of love and compassion and truth, that you're a person of holiness. By fearing God and walking with them. E even those uh, wives who had husbands who were unbelievers said, listen, speaking to women and saying, listen, I know it's, it's difficult because you don't believe the same thing, but here's how you show. It's not by getting dressed up in the world's eyes. It's by fearing God and humbling yourself in His eyes and walking faithful with them. Don't fear them. Honor God as holy. Don't fear what frightens. Honor God. Fear God. In a world of fear, I feel like every time I turn on the TV, there's fear. Every time. Every time I go on the internet. Delete my Facebook. Every time I go on there, there's just someone afraid of something, and I just, I can't. The only right recipient of fear is God. We honor spouses. We honor leaders. But God gets the greatest honor. 
See, when we fear and honor God more than the approval of others, it's a compelling motivator to open our mouths to the gospel. But the big question today that I want to ask you is do you fear man or do you fear God? Am I more concerned with momentarily pleasing those around me than I am pleasing God? Because can I just tell you, those around you need the hope of Jesus Christ. And the question is like, do I fear enough for them, for those in my city, to intercede for them with the hope and healing of Jesus? Would you stand with me today? I want us to end this way, in a, in a place of reflection. Now, we're going to open the altar, so... Uh, that space is always open after every service, but I want to pray very specifically. If you just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I fear man or do I fear God? Whose praise am I living for? Whose approval am I living for? Who am I living for? Do I fear man or do I fear God? Do I share the gospel like my goal is to please God or man? Do I use my time? Do I approach others? Do I treat those around me? Is my heart focused in a way that is to please man or to please God? I want to pray for you. Every eye closed, every head bowed. And then when I'm done praying, I'm just going to invite you. If you feel like that's a moment you need, you and the Lord, where you need to lift off that burden, feeling that desire to please others constantly, and you need to lay that at the altar, I'm going to invite you just to come forward and have that moment as the band leads us. But I want to pray for you. If you're saying today, I need that heart shift from pleasing man to pleasing God, and you're here today, and you want to just pray together. Say, God, would you just begin to shift my heart from trying to please others, from seeking the approval of others, to just living fully and completely. Would you lift your hands with me today as I lift my hands? I'd be honored to pray with you this morning. See God move upon your life. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that in your great love, you came to this earth and died so that we might receive new life. God, that our salvation is secured by your blood, not by works and by grace that comes through you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're with us. And God, we repent of the times where we have sought to serve man instead of serving you. And we've chosen to hold back from speaking life or truth with grace into a situation because of our desire or how I've lived to please others. God, we long to please you. And so our hearts today, we pray, would you fill us with your spirit so that we might pour out to others as an offering to you, God, that our hearts would be for you, to serve you, to not be afraid. But as believers, we would walk in the fullness of evangelism not trying to prove it to anyone, but because we served, we live to serve you. So shift our hearts, God, from a fear of man to a fear of you. We pray as we worship you that you would stir up in our hearts and overflow out of us. Overflow this morning in your mighty name. Amen.